0: to inside sponsorship the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice insights and news so they can maximize their commercial programs and achieve best practice
1: In late 1886 a gaggle of workers from the Woolwich Arsenal Armament Factory decided to form a football team they called themselves Dial Square as a reference to the sundial atop the entrance to the factory On December 11, 1886, Dole Square romped to a 6-0 victory over Eastern Wanderers, the first game in their initial guise. And shortly afterwards, the name Royal Arsenal was adopted. A group of players from Nottingham Forest joined the club, and this connection with the future European Cup winners would spawn Arsenal's famous red shirts. The group approached their former club, who had been formed some 20 years earlier, for some spare kit. And Forest, duly obliged, and Arsenal, dipped in red, never looked back. Fast forward 135 years or so, and that famous red shirt is now emblazoned with Emirates, who signed a five-year extension to their long-running shirt sponsorship deal in 2018, seeing the Emirates name feature on the shirts and kit of all Arsenal teams until the end of the 2023-24 season. It is the largest sponsorship deal signed by the London club, and will see the Emirates shirt partnership, which began in 2016, run to at least 18 years As an ever-present Premier League team, Arsenal are a global brand, and while current results are not favourable, they are one of the big six English football clubs boasting a sponsorship portfolio with some of the world's most recognisable brands, including, as I said, Emirates, but also Adidas, Cabri, Intel and Lavazza. Arsenal are just like every other team around the world as they responded to the pandemic, then started to welcome football back, welcome some fans back into stadiums and then manage the ever-changing environment and all the rules and regulations that come with it. Right in the middle of Arsenal's great sponsorship team is Alice Larkworthy, Senior Partner Services Manager at Arsenal FC, who are also a core client. Alice joins us later on in the show to take us inside Arsenal FC's corporate partners program. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 93 brought to you by Core Software. Thanks for joining us wherever you are in the world and whatever your role is in the sponsorship industry, it's amazing to have you with us for this show and I hope you are doing well. Shout out time and the only one for this episode goes out to Tom Dunn who is in the UK and he connected with me on LinkedIn and said, hi Daniel, absolutely love the podcast and I'm a recent graduate trying to break into the commercial side of the sports industry with a particular focus on sponsorship. I'm learning so much from listening to industry professionals on the podcast. Thanks for all that you are doing. It is our pleasure, Tom, and I hope you are well. And thanks for connecting. I really appreciate it. Listeners, if you'd like a shout-out yourself, then I'd love to hear from you. So please connect with me on LinkedIn, say hi, and I'll make that shout-out happen. It's now time to welcome Noelle Fanella, product manager at Core Software, who has written a blog recently titled, Brand Sponsors, Take Full Advantage of Your Hospitality Perks, and she's here to discuss that blog with us. Here's Noelle. Welcome to the show, Noelle. Hospitality at events has always been a staple. Of sponsorships and ever present. Some brands use them really well and use it strategically, but others kind of just use them for entertainment of the brand's executives, i.e. they don't really use hospitality to help them drive direct ROI or ROO. With the pandemic, however, for so many leagues right across the globe, it kind of feels like the pause that we've had to take with hospitality is really given us an opportunity to take stock and return with an eye on using hospitality better. And that is exactly what you've blogged about this month.
2: Yes, no, exactly there, Daniel. So across North America's big five sports, we know that 76% of sponsorship deals include some type of hospitality at events. It's one of the greatest assets that teams and entertainment venues offer, yet it's one of the hardest and most complex to actually activate upon. It's up to you as a brand partner to decide how you use these tickets and hospitality experiences. So as teams prepare to welcome guests back to arenas soon at variable seating capacities, we gathered a few tips to help brands get more out of these experiences.
1: Great and I love how a blog like this lays out a list of things to help people get more out of these experiences. We can follow these tips quite easily, we can look at some, move on to others, we've got a nice concise list. Now I know this blog is aimed at brands but Personally, I feel it's also really relevant for rights holders who want to ensure that the brands that are sponsoring them are activating hospitality well because that has long-term benefits for everyone. So let's move to the first one. Number one, it's determining your brand's objectives. What do you see us needing to do there?
2: As many data scientists say, if you can't measure it, you really can't improve it. To receive the most value, you must first decide what you are trying to achieve. Your marketing and sales initiatives should align with your sponsorship objectives. So, for example, your company might serve multiple industries. If you're in the middle of an initiative to increase customer spend in a particular segment, make sure to set aside enough tickets for that sector. Alternatively, you may be trying to attract new business. Bringing prospects to a game can build goodwill, but also invite some of your most loyal customers as well. Not only will you keep those relationships healthy, but your prospects can also meet customers who will help sell them on to you.
1: Absolutely. I think it's a great point. I love that the objectives can include relationship building, as you mentioned, keep some aside for loyal customers, because for me, it feels like hospitality is just so often used to try and make an impression on, on people who we want to do business with so people at the top of the funnel i think there's also scope for brands to use tickets to reward loyal or well-performing staff build those relationships and even their community partners in their corporate social responsibility and charitable programs and involvement so some great points there noel let's move to number two track who attends events why is this something that you think needs proper focus
2: So tracking ticket fulfillment data will provide valuable insight for years to come. To start, we recommend tracking a a few different attributes. One of those is who expressed interest to the event. As customers learn you have ticket inventory, you may have some directly requesting specific events. You'll learn what type of events your customers are actually interested in. And so number two there is who did you invite to the event? Number three, who accepted the invitation? And then lastly, number four is if they did attend the event. So you can combine these data points with your sales data. From there, you can then begin to assess if the sponsorship is generating the return on investment that you seek. So this can help determine whether a hospitality experience helps you increase spend, close new deals, or renew contracts with at-risk customers.
1: Great points. And finally, Noel, tip number three is to measure the value of attendee spend and influence. What do you mean exactly by that? Why is that important? And ultimately, how can the listeners do it?
2: So to gain the most value, your goals, again, must be measurable. With your objectives identified and knowledge of who attends events, you can create reports that show progress over time. So for example, suppose your goal is to increase brand loyalty among those attending the events. So you can look at the account that attended, the account's total spend prior to the event. You can then look at the account's percentage change in spending after the event. And then lastly, percentage of accounts that renew after attending the hospitality experience. You can quickly vet and then dig into the data to determine if the hospitality experience is increasing customer spend and retention. You can then compare this data to renewal and spend percentage of customers that were not invited to attend the event.
1: I like these couple of little points and pieces of advice, Noel, because as you were talking there, it occurred to me that in all the years that I may have been involved in helping people access hospitality and, and hosting guests at games and in hospitality suites, probably the thing that we always asked at the end was, did they have a good time? But that doesn't necessarily align to return on investment or return on objective. And it certainly doesn't give us data and records to go back to over a period of time and compare results and how we might be impacting our markets. But Noel, this is ultimately about ensuring that with our hospitality, we create actionable insights and increased returns, isn't it? Correct, Yeah.
2: So whether you utilize hospitality assets for... B2B sales or promotional marketing strategies, be sure to determine your company's objectives and track the utilization data. It's key to actual insights and increased return. Hospitality has a real opportunity to be better utilized as brands continually activate against events. To reiterate, the three tips are to determine your brand's objectives, track who attends events, and measure the value of attendees' spend and influence. Certainly helps brands ensure that they get the most out of their hospitality.
1: Great stuff, Noel. and all three tips. I love them, they're actionable, practical, and they give great and real benefit. Listeners, if you'd like to read Noel's blog in slow time, just head along to coresoftware.com, head to the resources section and click on the blog link and you'll find it right there. Noel, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, appreciate it.
1: In late 1886, a gaggle of workers from the Woolwich Arsenal armament factory decided to form a football team. Fast forward 135 years or so, and Arsenal are just like every other team around the world as they responded to the pandemic, welcomed football back, started to welcome fans into the stadium before that was stopped, and then managing the ever-changing environment and the rules and the regulations that come with it. As an ever-present Premier League team, Arsenal are a global brand, and while current results are not favourable, they are still one of the big six English football clubs, boasting a sponsorship portfolio with some of the world's most recognisable brands, including Emirates, Adidas, Cabri, Intel, and Lavazza. Right in the middle of Arsenal's great sponsorship team is Alice Larkworthy, Senior Partner Services Manager at Arsenal FC, who are also a core client, and Alice joins us now to take us inside Arsenal FC's Corporate Partners Programme. Here's Alice. Alice, welcome to the show. We always start with an icebreaker question or two just to help the audience get to know you a little, get the chat started, help you ease into it. As such, I'm curious about what your first ever memory of football is.
0: I mean, I grew up in a in a pretty sport-mad family, to be honest. So we kind of watched anything and everything. I also spent the first half of my life growing up overseas, mainly in kind of Southeast Asia and, and Australia. So, um, but always supported England, even though I'd never lived there at the time. It was kind of ingrained in me from, from my family. So, and one of my, you know, actually it's probably the earliest memory that, you know, still sticks so strongly in my head is Euro '96 which um, we actually lived in Sydney at the time. And I remember it was like 3, 4 a.m., which obviously felt like a ridiculous time to get up when you're a child. But my brother and I, we both got into bed with my parents and kind of turned it on. And it was England, Germany in the semifinal. And... England were playing in that grey colour and Germany were in white and I'd only ever seen England play in white so I kind of spent the first 20 minutes supporting Germany unbeknownst to me my dad pretty quickly put me in my place when I sort of realised the mistake I made obviously it didn't end too well for England but I just remember the four of us just being in bed at like three o'clock in the morning and and kind of watching watching that game and you know the probably love of sport and everything and and football in particular probably started
1: from about there well I can tell you Alice that uh, that's still how we pretty much spend uh, world cups and major soccer or football tournaments here in Australia getting up at (laughs) that stupid o'clock to watch football games so what about your first match day your first home match day for Arsenal tell us what what that was like what were the emotions what was the experience like
0: so it was 2015 so yeah just over five five years ago and I just started and we were still in the Champions League at that point so we were playing Bayern Munich at home and uh, my boss was like Look, you've obviously never been to a game why don't you come to this game and, you know even at the time I'm obviously an Arsenal fan by default now um, but I'd never been to an Arsenal game before so I was like you know why would you say no to Arsenal by Munich Champions League? Absolutely. So I remember going in and, and you know, there's the stadium is obviously really, it's because it's a new stadium. It's obviously a very, you know, well-built stadium to to kind of watch the game. And uh, I'd only been there a couple of days and we won like 2-0, I think it was, off the top of my head. And obviously everyone's going crazy. Everyone's going nuts. And like, it just sort of was like, well, this is all down to me. Obviously, I've just started. We (laughs) weren't meant to win this game. You know, best teams in Europe. We've just absolutely, you know, creamed them. And then um, I got the call up to actually go to Munich the week after for the follow-up fixture, which again was like incredible just to kind of see the difference and the fandom of... uh, of german football you know not to say it's any better but it's it's definitely a different a different vibe where um i got kind of brought down to earth fairly quickly with the result of of that fixture but um yeah it, it was it was amazing i think premier league football in general you, you can't go to a bad game which i think which is you know obviously why it's so popular essentially but yeah i remember that evening games especially just bring a bit of a, a different vibe and a bit of atmosphere to it which um is always is always quite special
1: Sounds amazing. Now, Alice, obviously you're at Arsenal now. You've been in a couple of different roles at Arsenal over the last couple of years. Can you give us a bit of a snapshot of the Arsenal sponsor portfolio? Set the scene for us a little bit and also maybe talk about the team structure that you have in place to help manage and deliver it all.
0: At the moment, we have 20 different sponsors and and they kind of get broken down into we have our our lead sponsors. So we have Adidas, Emirates and and Visit Rwanda. Um, And then the sort of second tier of global sponsors and then the third tier of kind of regional sponsors is is how we sort of split it out. And we've got a team of 15, which essentially sort of manage all of those partnerships on a a day-to-day basis. For myself specifically, everything that kind of sits outside of Adidas and Emirates sits within my remit. So our remaining kind of 18... 18 sponsors. I've got a team of six that essentially look after them and, and give them that kind of best-in-class rights delivery 24-7 sometimes, it feels like, um, that's the world we live in. And, yeah, it's it's each partner will get delegated a, a partner services manager and a partner services executive at, at a minimum, which are kind of on hand, and they will be the go-to people, day-to-day managers. And then myself sort of acts as that bit of a, a senior viewpoint along with our kind of head of department which we kind of come in and help out and when we need, but just making sure that there's obviously that kind of streamlined approach to our kind of rights delivery and and the way we kind of deal with partners across the board, essentially.
1: I wasn't entirely sure when to ask this question as it's pretty broad, but I feel like here is a good time before we go too much further forward. And we are in sort of still the scene setting mode, essentially, because as Arsenal and other EPL clubs become increasingly global brands, how has that actually impacted your business strategy?
0: I wouldn't probably sort of say it's changed too drastically over the last couple of years. I think we're fortunate that historically, we've always been a a large club and, you know, had a large following and, and been that kind of quote-unquote, kind of top six brand within within the league. So our strategy won't have changed, essentially, from um, the last couple of years specifically. We're always a values-led club, first and, first and foremost, and, and we're pretty proud to um, to pride ourselves on that. So when we sort of talk about finding new partnerships, uh, it's really kind of ensuring that we have those synergies with one another and that they fall kind of into that kind of values-led strategy that that we abide by on a, on a kind of day-to-day basis. And there's definitely a move from us, you know, as part of that, you know, we're very big in the community. We're always sort of trying to be innovative as and when we can be. So there's been a real, I guess, shift on our kind of purpose-led partnerships in the past kind of couple of years, essentially, when we've got, you know, we've put a real big sustainability hat on, Whether that's with, you know, Octopus Energy, our partner, whether that's with Ball Corporation, who's our aluminum and packaging partner, you know, really starting to kind of take a bit of a step back from those kind of quote unquote cash only deals, labels everywhere, and kind of really understanding exactly how we can benefit one another. And that's sort of sustainability angle is something we're sort of so passionate about that making sure that, that things like that, that common thread kind of sticks within within the partnerships at all times essentially.
1: Well, I was going to ask that because if, if your strategy hasn't changed too much over the last couple of years but you are very or much more purpose-led and focused on sustainability, is that something you try and, for want of a better phrase, try and wash through existing partnerships in 2020 and 2021?
0: I think most businesses in general will have taken a bit of a, you know, a closer look at them as a business in their sort of sustainability functions, what they're doing. So I don't think it's us going to a number of different partners and sort of saying, this is what we're doing. How can you kind of contribute? They're already doing some excellent, some great things. And it's kind of understanding whether our partners who are experts in certain, certain fields, what we can learn from them, vice versa you know, our sort of in-stadium partnership with Camden Town Brewery, for example, brought in a whole reusable cup scheme. And we were the first in the Premier League to kind of bring, bring that through. So it's not really trying to start from scratch with these partners. It's just really kind of understanding the kind of things they're doing, the kind of things they want to do, what are we trying to do, and where that kind of alignment is.
1: And do you feel as though that makes it much more easier to start those partnerships off as true partnerships as you said before quote unquote cash deals if you're talking to sponsors about things that they're or potential sponsors about things that they're already doing and doing well and then trying to bring them into your business and talking about how you can work together do you think that helps you start a partnership off on the right foot rather than just really just underlying what the commercial values are
0: Yeah, definitely. Part of our job is when we're sort of bringing new partners on board is is understanding them from the get-go, right? And kind of, I think, you know, a lot of people will throw around the word authenticity, but I think we're very hot on it and kind of making sure that there is that kind of authentic connection between the two brands because, you know sponsorship world is is fairly flooded right there's so many different brands doing so many different things so we need to make sure that what we're doing we actually believe in and is authentic because the fans will see right through it and and you know general outsiders will see kind of right through it so i think there's definitely a lot more time spent on finding those synergies that we kind of have have together especially cuz the messaging that we as a brand want to portray is why a lot of partners kind of sponsor with us in the in the first place so it's a benefit to both to kind of almost have that you know agreement up from the start before we kind of go out with anything anything publicly
1: I think it's a great point you make about fans potentially seeing right through something that's not authentic because sports fans in general and particularly football fans, they are not backwards in being vocal if they want to call a club out about how something's being managed or put into place. Now, Alice, as I prepped for this chat, I realised that you are someone... Who is in a unique position because you've worked on the brand side with Barclays and on the agency side with Octagon and also on the right side of side with Queensland Rugby Union in Australia and also Football Federation Australia and now obviously at Arsenal and you've done that across three very different markets, Australia, North America and the UK and I'm not sure whether over the 90-plus episodes we've done of this show that we've had many with experience in all three sides across three different markets. As such, I wanted to get your thoughts on how those roles have helped you as you've moved on in the sense of being able to give others some insights into the organisations that they work with themselves in terms of, let's start with, when you moved from the agency side, having worked for a brand previously, how did working for that brand help when brands became clients of octagon
0: i think it's really important it's always important no matter what field you're in to have different voices in the room right whether that's from work experience specifically or for you know other ways of life etc having that kind of disparity and opinion i think is really important the more voices you've got to take into account i think the more well-rounded approach you're gonna you're gonna have to things so i was Pretty fortunate with kind of everything I've done, um, but I was also I was pretty determined from the start. <laughs> to, be, to be completely honest with you, I um I originally wanted to be a physio. That was my my first my first plan. Did all my kind of schoolwork experience in that. Went to do kind of sports science and physiology at uni. That was you know my plan. Got to the second year and that was a bit like oh gosh, like I really just I've lost that kind of drive that that's sort of what I what I wanted to do. But I always knew that I had to be involved in sport to some capacity. That was my kind of one true love and, and my one passion. And I was kind of, you know, really going to do anything to be involved in it. But I think having that blinkered approach of wanting to be a physio to start with, meant that I kind of didn't really understand the multiple facets of, of this industry that we kind of work in and, and the different areas you can be involved in. So I sort of sought out internships with kind of Barclays, as you said, who were the Premier League sponsor at the time. And that was my first kind of foray into, I guess, the commercial side of of sports and, and sponsorship in particular, which was, you know, not only a great learning experience, but also they were huge at the time. It's one of, you know, it was the, the um, title sponsor of the premier league, all sorts to kind of see and see and do at the stage at that stage. And then at the time, my parents were living in, in the U S and they were living in Colorado, which just so happened to be uh, the home of USA rugby. So again, when I sort of got shipped back home for the summer, wasn't allowed to kind of stay in the, in the UK. My dad was very much like, "Well, you better find something to do because you're not going to sit around the house all day." Essentially, so I wrote to USA Rugby, and they were hosting the Churchill Cup, which was a sort of a summer competition for the B teams, essentially of your Englands, your Irelands playing the USA, Canada, etc. So, again, fortunate coincidence, but. You know, I sort of put my name in the hat to be involved in in that sort of thing. And that was more events led. So obviously running that from, you know, a, a different lens from that kind of purely commercial side. So again, it's just kind of mixing all these different kind of experiences, which I think really helped me when I moved agency side, especially because anyone that knows when you well, when you go to anything, but especially when you go to an agency as kind of a 23-year-old, it's a say yes to anything, do anything, put your hand up for anything, which I think is the attitude I, I kind of, you know, developed and got, which, you know, was the best thing that could have could have ever happened, essentially, because you just get to experience so much. And by saying, you know, whether that's you're involved in golf, from football to, you know, Olympics, which I managed to work on to like towards the end of my kind of octagon tenure all of that things, is you kind of just essentially act as act as a bit of sponge, which you kind of take it all on board. I think moving on to a rights holder after that, essentially, um, you know, all of those pieces kind of started to fall together, essentially, I think, especially, you know, with my role at Arsenal, you've got very different degrees as partners who've been involved in sponsorship before who are maybe sophisticated in that space to those who are maybe new to that space. So for that first year, and knowing how important that first year of a partnership is, you essentially have to act as a bit of a full service agency for these for these people. They're not kind of okay with with you know outsourcing that sort of level of of support. So I don't think you ever let go of each of those experiences. And I think especially now, you know, everyone's got a role, but there's probably a little bit more scrutiny on kind of external support, etc. Um, so everyone kind of needs to. I don't like to be an expert in each field because that downplays people who are actually proper experts in, in their various different different realms. But we need to be as educated and as up-to-date and current as we, as we can be because essentially, more often than not, as the rights holder for many partners, we're the first port of call. So we need to be sort of equipped enough with various different scenarios, all those different questions, all those different solutions, more importantly, to make sure that we're getting the most out of that partnership from from the get-go.
1: It's sage advice and particularly allows you to be more proactive rather than just reactive when you start to get those calls. Now, Alice, any interviews at the moment are going to touch it on COVID-19 and you've probably done pretty well to avoid any COVID-19 related questions for about 16, 17 minutes so far. Clearly, as we all in the industry are still adapting and finding our way. So this chat's not going to be any different with references to COVID-19, obviously. So 2020, it was so unpredictable, but you had to press on as the season recommenced after a little bit of a hiatus or, or a pause, but in a vastly different landscape, specifically with no fans in the stadium. And that continues largely now. We did see fans come back in some stadiums for a little bit, but that's now obviously stopped. What's your approach been to managing just the, the unbelievable disruption caused by COVID-19?
0: We all would have loved to have had the answers from the start, but everyone was, you know, essentially learning how how we went. I think we were also in a fairly interesting position that we had two completely scenarios for our men's and our women's team as well. So obviously the men's season and restarted but the women's season was curtailed so we you know had to adopt different strategies there are some partners that sit across both so there couldn't necessarily be a a one-size-fits-all solution for for either but for us as much as anything it's being on the front foot as much as we can, making sure that that dialogue is constant. I think for the first sort of couple of months when we were all in a national lockdown and there was, there was no football, it was keeping that dialogue up. Everyone was in a similar situation, right? So we were kind of fortunate that, you know, we weren't being, you know, looked at negatively. Everyone was just trying to to figure it out. But that said, it's a testament to the relationship that that we have built with all of our partners, and and you know the team especially have built with their partners that we could be in a position whereby we could find solutions. You know, understanding that there are various different restrictions across the world, you know, various different partners have been hit differently. You know, in in terms of what they're trying to promote, who they are as a brand. So I think we kind of really had to take the time and understand exactly what the different pain points for each of our, our partners were were, partners had, sorry. um, And how we could address them. I think, you know, when there's crisis, there's also opportunity, right? So I think it probably forced us to think a bit differently about how we could deliver things and and also forced our kind of partners as well to just think how we could essentially still do the things we want to do, but just with a, a different take on it and a different hat on it. So the first, I guess if we talk to 1920 season, the back end of that was just a really big learning experience, I think, for, for everyone. I think the sad part was obviously we won the FA Cup and no one could go, which you know was sort of one of those things and those highlights that everyone like looks forward to. So, but again, it was working out how do we keep that fan base engaged at all times. So Uh, We would do kind of a a charity hour-long TV show to kind of, again, raise money for our foundation. It was making sure that we utilized our legend appearances to just kind of keep those touch points, our player appearances going as as long as we can, even though it wasn't the same and it was obviously slightly difficult. You know, people sort of craving that that relationship with the club has never been higher, right? So um, it kind of afforded us the opportunity to just maybe do some smaller things here and like here and there, but actually it still had such a big effect and such a positive effect for, for, you know, the club and and our partners as well.
1: Alice, we heard lots of different stories about how sponsors reacted initially to COVID-19 and you mentioned that some partners had been hit differently and that's probably fair for a lot of brands all over the world that are involved in, in sponsorship. Some brands reacted really negatively. Some people came to the, the table and wanted to talk about how they could still make relationships work. We're pretty much a year on through a pandemic now. How would you describe the sentiment amongst sponsors these days?
0: The need and the desire of football fans will always be there, right? So I think the sentiment will never change in that respect. I think what we are essentially doing, we may have pivoted slightly. So for a number of our partners, for example, we have a very engaged community team, for example, in which we've sort of had to lend ourselves to that kind of COVID response Dealing with, you know, employability, dealing with loneliness, food poverty, like all this, all these sort of things that may have always been there, especially in, you know, a surrounding Aslington area, but really kind of came to the forefront and, and how we could help. So it was, you know, those, I guess, intangible things that our partners kind of maybe needed to, to change, that wasn't gonna be a revenue generator, but it was just the right thing to do. So whether that was Lavazza donating hot coffee to all the local hospitals, you know, whether that was Cadbury uh, selling bespoke Arsenal bars, so the local cafes to kind of raise money and, and kind of keep their, their business going. Lavazza again, also before COVID, were doing an employability program and that we're training up, you know, some youth in the community to be baristas. So they could obviously go and find sort of jobs in various different cafes also in, in Emirates Stadium. That kind of then essentially came to a halt, but we then had to shift all that online. So ensuring that that kind of dialogue and that relationship is, is keep going. So everything I think we were doing remained sort of the same in terms of what the objective was. We maybe just had to kind of change the mechanic and, and the delivery of it essentially.
1: Well, on that point, for a lot of rights holders, the revisiting of agreements and, and repositioning and refocusing of relationships has seen at least some change. We've seen the brands and agencies, they're continuing to ask more and more of teams as those partnerships evolve. How have you and the team used data to highlight the value of your partnerships?
0: Data is more and more, obviously, increasingly important. Again, there will be a different use for different partners in terms of how they want to use it to quantify their their sponsorship, essentially. A couple of years ago, we noticed a bit of a gap in what we were providing to our partners, particularly on the qualitative side. Because, you know, as we sort of said, a lot of the stuff that we do with our partnerships at the moment is about sentiment, it's about, you know, engagement. That doesn't necessarily fix a value to it in kind of whatever whatever we're doing. So we commissioned our own survey essentially, which would go out to thirty to forty thousand fans each season. Which really was a purely partnership partnership led focus, where we could kind of get those specific questions that our partners were maybe looking for that we wouldn't get elsewhere. So we would work with them. We would work with Holland Partners, who is the agency that, that we work with, to create these these questionnaires which, um, again, just gave us an extra layer of, of data and, and response to partnerships that we were probably missing before. So there's no almost, I guess, one source to kind of go to. And, you know, that data, again, is constantly changing, right? Especially at the moment, if we think about how much has kind of gone online and, and digital, there's sort of, you know, the numbers have changed dramatically over, over the, last, the last kind of year or so, especially, So it's piecing together all those different elements from all the different areas and kind of really then starting to hone in and, and, you know, scrutinize what that data is telling us. And we'd work with our partners on that. That's not sort of something that we just, you know, take in house and kind of don't share. I think it's important to share everything that we get because there's key learnings that can kind of come out of, of all of it and kind of making sure that year on year we're tweaking things, we're getting better, we're not kind of staying the same because that's really the only way that we'll kind of improve both from the partner side and us.
1: You mentioned questionnaires there. I wanted to pick that up. That sounds really interesting. I won't ask you to go into specifics and give too much uh, key information away, but it'd be great if you could just give us a bit of a ballpark on the number of questions that you're posing to fans because, well, they'll probably be more engaged because they want to be part of a football club and they want to help their own football club and all those sorts of things quite often as consumers, when we get surveys, we're like, "Ugh, there's 30, 40 questions there. It's going to take me a, a long time. And, and it'd be great to get a little bit of a sense on, as I said, I don't expect you to give a percentage, You know, 85% of people responded or completed. It would be great if you could tell us that whether that, that was a really valuable exercise and whether it continues today.
0: Yeah. It, I mean, it definitely was. I think it's the way that sort of the survey was built was it would change from, from an individual to individual. So, for example, if we had a partner who was only in a specific region, if the fan answering that was from that region, they would get directed to questions specifically about that partner. It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be kind of asking for responses on every single partner because you know, exactly like you say, it would dilute the responses. We were really looking for, you know, people who engaged with us as a club and potentially engaged with our partner brand specifically. So not one person did the same each time. And that's why we were kind of able to extrapolate a wide wide range of data from, you know, understanding generically of all of our sponsors, who have you been made aware of, And then from their selections, we could almost draw down to then ask them the specific questions that our various partners may have been asking. That question could have changed depending on what territory they were in. You know, things like like that. So I think it was... It wasn't a long drawn out process because people, like you say, we live in an instant society, right? Like if it's not done in five minutes, people aren't, aren't particularly likely to do it. So we needed to make it digestible and, and easily done for, for people. And, and I think we've done that and, you know, we sort of still, still continue to use it.
1: You mentioned earlier, obviously, that data is more and more important. And a few years ago, you noticed a gap in the quantitative data aspect. Now, that sounds as though that was an internally driven realisation. But I'm curious about whether you've noticed any changes in what partners, so in, in external pressure, in what partners are asking for in terms of measuring partnership success in recent years, particularly around the reporting of it?
0: It would vary again. I think, you know, when we're not a one size fits all reporting approach to to partners, they'll all have different needs, you know, we need to kind of consider what various reporting metrics they're using on on their end as well, and how it can complement it rather than, you know, completely sit in silo from one another. Because again, we're doing this together, right? So we want kind of the information to be, you know, collaborative with each other. Otherwise it, it can be redundant fairly, fairly quickly. So it would again depend on things like that and you know how potentially well-versed various partners are in that in that research space. But again, it's we we would work with them on it. Like we'll we we'll obviously, you know, there are some people, some partners, for example, who don't have camera-facing assets. So the media value element is not going to come from our traditional Nielsen reports, uh, for example. So, you know, there may be ways that we need to sort of think a little bit differently. And how we can kind of get that data? Is it purely? We know that their objective is to grow their, you know, social audience. So actually, the focus is purely on that that social valuation piece. So, are there extra bits there? Can we sort of speak to the various different social media platforms to get various different data analytics from them to support potentially what we're doing with with Blinkfire? It's not, you know, a, a hard and fast. We use these three, and and that's it. it it's a hundred percent a collaborative approach in terms of what. we're we're essentially both looking for. We both want it to be a success. We know the partnerships are success. So let's find the information that proves it.
1: Also in recent years, we've seen the emergence of much shorter three-month partnerships in the Premier League, such as with Sky Sports. How do you see this impacting or maybe changing partnerships over time? And how have you had to pivot the management of these types of partnerships compared to the more traditional multi-year deals?
0: I mean, they're definitely different. I think, again... Those sort of shorter deals essentially become a bit of a, a larger media buy, essentially, right? So the time we have to develop and, and understand what we're trying to get out of it is is much shorter, but that's not a negative, right? Actually, it probably just forces us all to be far more efficient and far more understanding of what our joint objectives are from, from the get-go. So there will always be a, a place for those, particularly, I think, if we're talking about product launches, you know, seasonal activations, you know, things like that, which sort of have an essential time limit on it. But I don't think we'll ever move away from that traditional long-term relationship because I think many sponsors, rights holders, et cetera, out there will tell you that these things, especially when you want to talk about long-term engagement and, you know, efficacy with, with fans, that takes time. That doesn't happen, happen overnight. So, you need to make sure that you kind of have those longer term relationships that not only do you build your relationship with your rights holder, you're, you're building your relationship with the consumers, your customers, your, your fans as well. And that will develop. That's not something that you're just going to be able to do something in year one, do it for year two and three and you know expect, expect the same result. You've got to kind of constantly evolve and you can only really do that when we're talking over, over a couple of years.
1: It's a great point you make about it only being able to happen over a couple of years and so we we probably won't see a lot of change or or the complete disappearance of those longer term multi-year deals. But what we have seen change in brands such as Coca-Cola, talking about rights holders deriving alternative value from brands via partnerships in lieu of simple cash. Now. Obviously, cash is still king. It it, it talks, right? But do you see an opportunity potentially to leverage your partners to help generate maybe other revenue-making opportunities for the club and in return making the partnership more accessible and embedded for the brands?
0: Absolutely. I think, again, from what we do at Arsenal, we build all of our partnerships bespoke, right? There's not, you know, there's a deal one, two, and three, pick one, and, and we run with it. You know, it's all it's they're all different that not two are the same. So as part of that kind of conversation that we would have from the start, it's understanding what the value in the partnership is now, whether that value is purely cash, whether that value comes with some form of, you know, value and kind element, if they've got a product that we would use to kind of help, we've got, you know, we've got a mixture of that. So I, you know, as you sort of say, cash is king. And, you know, I think that that's, that's right. And I think there's no hiding away from the fact that at the moment, you know, clubs, you know, it's an area that we're essentially struggling with, with the fact that, you know, our kind of whole matchday revenue stream has gone from, you know, however much to zero overnight. But that's not to say that there's still not ever going to be a need for those that sort of transfer of value, which might not be money related, essentially, if it's something that both parties need, and can kind of get the most out of it, whether that's, you know, from our side, maybe on the medical football side, is there, you know, products, et cetera, that they would use, which we can kind of bring into the partnership portfolio, or whether it's something that the commercial side would use, we'd always be there for for a conversation. You know, take any sort of cash products, transfer a value stock out of it. If it's a partnership that we feel that both parties will get what they want out of it, that's that's the main priority.
1: Being bespoken and being flexible is is Certainly helpful, but let's talk about what trends you might be seeing or or even predicting because the pandemic has given an opportunity for rights holders and brands alike to rethink that transfer of value in relation to partnerships. And as I mentioned with Coca-Cola earlier, what are some of the key changes or trends that you think are going to come about on the transfer of value front?
0: Difficult to pinpoint, I think, because at the moment we're still not to normal if you you know what I mean like we've still probably got another you know six months year potentially of us trying to navigate the various different complexities of of COVID so I think it'd be it, it will be tricky but obviously if you talk about the explosion of tech over this this period of time we as a club feel kind of we're very innovative we'd be open to kind of have those Those conversations in terms of how we as a business can improve from here in the future. And and maybe that's an area that will kind of get investigated and and explored a little bit more. I think when we talk about, I guess, the future, digital rights, etc, are being used all over the shop, which is great. It kind of allows us to reach, you know, a far wider audience. But we also just need to be understanding that if that's what everyone is doing, how are our partners finding the breathing space within that kind of cluttered market? So there's obviously your very traditional sort of social media channels that we use, you know, but there's also the emergence of new platforms, TikTok, Twitch, et cetera, which are fairly, I guess, new in, in the space of sponsorship. They're not obviously necessarily new in, in you know, the, the wider world. But, you know, starting to, I guess, understand those a little bit more, you know, how... Um, you know, how we can use these platforms to leverage these sponsorships, which we may not have been before. So, you know, we work with uh, Konami, for example, who obviously produce pro evolution soccer. So they're very, you know, au fait with how Twitch works and, you know, gaming streaming and, and things like that. So that transfer of value that we spoke about is maybe actually something as simple as knowledge share and kind of just understanding from them a little bit more, how they use it, what's worked for them, what hasn't, can we take that on board and then start to build, you know, what our potential program on those platforms would be. So it doesn't even really need to be something that sophisticated. It could just be learning from people who've been using these, you know, in, in the wider digital space for for much longer than than we have, and what we can learn and how we can use it.
1: I feel bad about asking this question because of the amazing European football night memories that you spoke about earlier, but it is an important question. Arsenal's form has dipped below expectations over the last few years and unfortunately, for example, missing out on Champions League football. Has this changed how you've had to work with your brands? Has there been a shift in focus to maybe more return on objective rather than return on investment given the drop in European football?
0: No, I think I would say I think most of our partners would work towards a return on an objective than investment anyway anyway. Um, I think there's been a a shift in that the last kind of couple of years or so, especially just because as I was saying, there's so many different facets to, to the deliverables of what we offer as, as a partnership. It's not as black and white as ROI can be sort of sometimes. So I, and there's no hiding away from the fact that the success that we've had on the pitch isn't what we expect to be as a club you know, we take pride in our history and and a part of that kind of pride in our history is we should be competing on all levels at all times. And, you know, we feel that we, we're on the right track, you know, with the team we've kind of got in place at the moment, there is this sort of new wave of of excitement. It's not going to happen overnight. These changes take take time. But in terms of, I guess, you know, our partners more often than not, as all the staff that kind of works there, we're all fans, we're all kind of you know, wanting, you know, Arsenal to win at all times, get back to those sort of champions level, Champions League levels that we kind of spoke about last time. But just because we might not have that doesn't mean the engagement of our fans has diminished. You know, that that level of fandom is still there. And that's sort of what you know we can and, and have to focus on, because you know everyone, you know, most sports are tribal. Football in particular is an extremely tribal sport, and you know when you pick your team, that's that's you for life, for better or worse. Sometimes, but you know, so that's what we mean. That engagement is there. The people that you're talking to won't change. Yeah, their sort of you know viewpoints on where we should be will always be there. But you know, that sport, that's us as fans. You know, and we just kind of have to have to roll with it and kind of just do better the next time. That's all we can do. And that's kind of the same, I think, across the board, both football side and and commercial side. But like I said, the the important thing is the people we're talking to are still going to be there. And so we need to make sure that what we're talking to them about is relevant and up-to-date. And that's probably the only kind of really key difference with that.
1: Speaking of the future, in the commercial team specifically, how do you plan to manage the comeback of fans to the stadium and match days. How will it impact your team? And I'm particularly curious about whether you've taken the opportunity to plan and explore different ways of doing things on match days.
0: If I told you how many different scenarios we've had to plan for over the last year, (laughs) you'd probably laugh because exactly that. It is virtually impossible To plan I think you know the return of fans to stadium is one thing but return of fans safely to stadium is is the priority and that's kind of the key thing here and we have a wider working group which essentially involves every single department in the club which we managed to sort of bring to fruition for two games before we kind of Had to get that sort of taken taken away again, but it's you know there's there's the obvious point of we have various different contractual assets that we need to deliver, and that will always be a part of the conversation. But we're still a fans first club in the fact that you know whenever we get our ticket allocation, whether it was two thousand like it was you know however many months ago versus you know when we go back to kind of sixty thousand it's part of that wider conversation of it's not just going to be the commercial delivery. We have to ensure that there are fans in that stadium because they're just as valuable to us in any capacity. So there's sort of all sorts of different kind of conversations that have gone on and that have happened that I don't think any of us could have envisioned, you know, knowing about various different hand sanitizers and screening and distancing and, you know, different challenges of, you know, not being able to have alcohol on GA as an example, because the restrictions stated that you could only drink if you had a substantial meal, whatever that means, and a seat, which we couldn't offer that on GA, but we could on our hospitality level. So again, it's, there's, there's a slight disparity on even what that kind of fan experience looks like. So we have to constantly be informed. We have to constantly be updated And we just have to deliver everything we can to to the letter that the law allows us. And that takes an absolute army, I can assure you, to make sure that, that we're doing that at all times.
1: You said how hard it is to plan the comeback of fans, but maybe the saving grace will be that everyone will be so excited when the stadium can can have significant fan numbers back, that all the energy and positivity will get you over any hurdles that you might face. Now, Alice, your LinkedIn profile highlights that you and the team are focused on being the best that you can be. And there are references in your profile to consistently identifying methods to improve efficiency and productivity levels and continually assessing relevance And ways of improvement so talk to us about how that manifests itself in the office and how and where you and the team go for best practice information and staying up to date and continually learning where do you go to for sources of information and inspiration
0: you know we're extremely fortunate to work in the field we do right but everything that we do within the partnerships team and and obviously other teams within the club we look at everything with a, with a high performance lens. So we you know, make sure all of our objectives, whether that's individual objectives, team objectives, they all need to ladder up to what we class as, as kind of high performance. And that's an expectation of everyone that works in the club to deliver that day in, day out. And I think as part of that, there is an individual strive to always get better and, and be as knowledgeable as possible. And I guess there's not, for me, there wouldn't be one source of knowledge that you can kind of go to. I think it's also just really important to not just look at football and sport. We need to look at what's happening in entertainment. We need to be look at what's happening in music. All that sort of stuff is just as important because there's all these sort of ideas that you can come from, from various different walks of life. And it's understanding maybe we might not be able to do it like that. But actually, if we tailor something, that could be something really cool and different that we do for our kind of football fans and, you know, try and continue to kind of be innovative as much as much as we can. Smaller things like we sort of implemented a guest speaker program recently as well, which I think is really, really important for for all levels of individuals, you know, when you talk about learning and training, etc, obviously, there's various different ceilings, depending on what level you're at in terms of having to do something differently. But if we can get different individuals to come and speak, whether they're from agencies, whether they're from brands, you know, we work with our partners, some of our partners have ambassadors that we kind of are tapping into to kind of talk about that high performance speaking in that high performance lens, it can kind of come from anywhere. And I think touching on that point earlier the more different viewpoints you can get and you can listen to and the more different voices you've got in the room just leads to that kind of greater sense of creativity and and ability to to learn and then in turn deliver for our partners.
1: Alice your LinkedIn profile also notes that you have a quote a partner induction process in line with expectations, end quote. Can you outline what that induction process looks like as well as the, the expectation part in terms of what you feel sponsors expect and want when beginning a partnership with Arsenal?
0: The induction for us is is extremely key in getting off on the right foot, as you say, As as most people will know, the team that's maybe done the deal in the first place to the team that's actually going to be delivering the deal over the next kind of couple of years will probably completely, completely different. So there's automatically that that education piece in general that needs to needs to be there. But also it's that kind of first introduction to the club, who we are, what we stand for and what this partnership will look like for them. But again, because it's a a two-way street, it's really important that it's not just us presenting to them. I think that's really, really key. So one thing that we do, for example, is for all of our new partners, we send a, a questionnaire out prior to the induction taking place, which is about sort of 15 questions long. But it's sort of, for us, is a really good start of 10 to understand exactly what they want out of the partnership because we can then tailor that induction to what their deal looks like and the stuff that they really want to know. So whether you know it's a heavily social, digital-based, you know, we'd front end with all of our you know, digital experts and our production team, et cetera, the stuff that they can do and the stuff that they're looking to do, whether that's on reporting, whether that's analytics, whether that's actually ways to use your player access creatively. You know, It's pointless us going into those inductions and being like, here's your 20,000 rights, here are the different things you can do. Because if it's not relevant to them, it's not going to resonate. And we need that engagement from those sponsors fr- from the start. So that's why we almost put the challenge on them early as well, to be like, we'll tell you everything you know about the club you need to know, but you also need to tell us what your expectations are and what we need to deliver from you. And we will get that information from you and make sure it's there and those relationships are there from from the beginning, because you know there's different levels of partners, which mean different journeys, especially in that in that first year. So, our job as a as a partner services team is we need to be a little bit nimble. We need to kind of cater to each individual needs differently. And knowing that that first year kind of I guess sets the building blocks for the successful future of, of the coming years. Both parties need to be equally invested and and involved. And so so that's why we need them just as much as us to be aligned in kind of all the information we're giving and receiving so that kind of joint effort comes to fruition.
1: Well speaking of that success that will come in future years sponsors brands they'll pretty much know when they are happy with the outcome of a sponsorship whether it's the return on investment or the return on objective but Internally, how do you and the team measure your success purely outside of revenue targets and and whether you've delivered all the list of benefits that are that are listed in a sponsorship agreement?
0: there's There's your obvious ones. you know when we talk about partner renewal rates, for example, when we talk about new business wins, et cetera. That's a natural barometer of how an existing partnership is is going. If we can if we can renew them, but again, there's also various different kind of club priorities that we have in place, which maybe don't have a set revenue target. But it's it's how can our partners, you know, get involved and, and kind of help us achieve those priorities. Whether that's from knowledge sharing, whether that's from you know product donation there's kind of all sorts, as I was sort of mentioning earlier about our community program, can, you know, our partners help in an area that is in real need at the moment, which sort of sits outside of their natural remit, essentially. So again, I think it's, it's, we all know what we're trying to achieve. I think setting whatever objectives you have from the start are always kind of key. So we know what we're aiming for and not like it's not all those objectives will be financial, right? There might be, you know, get X number of people to sign up to help with the loneliness program that our community team's running, for example. So it's just a constant kind of conversation, I'd say. And, you know, we're not going to do anything that we don't feel we can achieve, and that is actually going to be achievable for both parties, and we're going to get what we want out of it. So I think it's setting those parameters um, from the start is, is really important.
1: It's always a good COVID-19 question to ask and the old crystal ball question about what's going to happen in the future. But I don't want to ask that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tailor it a little bit for you. I'm curious about whether you think there are things that you feel are going to become less or more important going forward as we sort of emerge out of the pandemic.
0: Look, I mean there's going to be such such a hype on getting fans back into stadium and and attending, you know, games again that I don't think anything will become less important. I think everything will be heightened. Everything to do with the sport, whether that's match day attendance, outside of it, you know, is 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 going to be that there. there's going to be a bigger desire for tickets, things like that. So actually can we kind of be creative? There'll be different ways around how we are rewarding the community, potentially rewarding people that have been integral to this kind of COVID-19 response. It's not just gonna necessarily be, let's host you know, some of our key business contacts at the game, which will always have a place and always be important, but I think there will probably just be a a bigger scrutiny on what's being used for what and, um, you know, essentially really kind of taking a closer look at their assets and what they're getting out of it at at the end of the day. Like I sort of mentioned earlier, I think that sort of wider grasp of digital platforms, I think it's, you know, by the time this gets released, there's probably something new on the horizon that's going to be, you know, the next big thing, et cetera, That, that landscape is constantly moving. Right. So we can't sort of rest on our laurels and just assume that, where we're at today is where we're going to be tomorrow. So I think the most important thing is to always be aware and conscious of of what's going on, and what we can kind of use to leverage partnerships that may or may not be what we've done the previous year, always being flexible, you know, always being open, always being innovative, to maybe just try things a little bit a little bit differently. I think there's, you know, I guess less of a of the nervousness about trying new things, probably now, because, you know, everything is slightly unstable, everyone's kind of slightly unknown about things that I hope that continues, that we're not just going to see, you know, the usual bits of content going out, you know, the usual pushes for, for product placement, etc. I think, again, that will always be there. But I think I'm hoping there will be, you know, a greater need for, for creativity out there. And, you know, it's not necessarily just going to be about did this post get the most likes, it's actually okay, well, we tried something new there, we now know a little bit more about our audience, we now know a little bit more about what we're trying to do. And actually, we're then going out to an engaged audience. And it's not just about, you know, the numbers at the end of the day.
1: I agree with you, Alice. I hope the the creativity and the risk envelopes continue to get pushed uh, post pandemic. Uh, look, this has been a fantastic chat. If the listeners want to connect with you, maybe find out more about the work that you do. Maybe keep the conversation going. What can they do? Where can they go?
0: Yeah, uh, LinkedIn would be would be the best bet, I'd say. So you can find me, Alice Lockworthy, on on LinkedIn, and yeah, drop me a message. I'm always happy to to have a conversation with anyone.
1: Alice Larkworthy, Senior Partner Services Manager at Arsenal FC. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside Arsenal's commercial program. And we wish the club the best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you. As we close in on 100 episodes, it's amazing that that's the first time we've ever had a Premier League team on the show. I don't know how we haven't gotten around to it sooner. So it was great to have Alice on the show and take us inside Arsenal FC's Corporate Partners program. And I trust that you got lots of value out of what Alice had to share with us. You can connect with Alice on LinkedIn. Just search for Alice Larkworthy. That's L-A-R-K-W-O-R. T-H-Y, and of course, head to arsenal.com for more information about the club or simply head to callsoftware.com and the resources section, click on the podcast link and you'll find direct links to Alice's LinkedIn profile and Arsenal in the show notes for this episode. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-O. T-O-N. I'd love to hear from you. And if you want to connect with Core Software's product manager, Noelle Finella, you can catch her on noelle.fenella at coresoftware.com or search for her on LinkedIn as well. That's Noelle, N-O-E-L-L-E, and Fanella. F-A-N-E-L-L-A. That's a wrap for Episode 93. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship.
0: Listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcast. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.